Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Uh, I just had a great discussion with Yelena McWilliams, the chairman of the FDIC here at the uh, FinTech conference. We spent an hour on stage talking about the FDIC and, and its role in managing uh, the growth of technology uh, within the financial services business. Elena, thanks so much for joining us. You know, I think one of the big things we talked about was, you know, certainly from your perspective of the FDIC is trying to balance kind of the fostering innovation within the financial services industry through fintech, through crypto, all those cool things that we're reading about while at the same time protecting consumers, protecting the banks, protecting the system. Give us a sense of how you walk that line. It's, uh, by the way, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. It's a fine balance we have to strike as regula regulatory bodies in, in Washington. You want to encourage innovation. You want to encourage entrepreneurship with these banking entities because you want the banking activity to take place at the banks. And at the same time, if you over-regulate it, if you don't give banks certainty on how to innovate and engage with tech companies, the banking services and products are going to go outside of the banks. And we will have a, a, a less of an ability to regulate them appropriately and provide for consumer protection if those things are done outside of the of the banking regulatory agency's uh, sphere of influence. And so there, there's, a, there's a dual purpose here. One is you want banks to innovate because they have to stay competitive, especially for small banks. They're suffering from the economies of scale, basically decimating their ability to attract new customers and grow uh, and compete with some of their much larger uh, counterparties. And at the same time, you don't want so much activity to leave the banks that uh, that you're increasing systemic risk outside of the banks and uh, and unable to regulate it from a federal perspective. So, so it's a fine balance. So which innovations are you talking about here? Is it sort of online loans and sort of underwriting standards in that way? Is it uh, Bitcoin and cyber, you know, different uh, crypto assets? What, what, what innovations are sort of the most exciting and the most dangerous from your perspective? So among the most exciting are the ability of banks now to reach the unbanked and underbanked customers through some of the fintech companies and the channels that otherwise would not, have, would not have been available to the banks or the customers. And so there's a potential for this new technology and, and the banking services to be offered to uh, millions of people that uh, would have been left out of the banking system, but for the fact that technology is now making these banking services and products accessible to them. On the other hand, you have to be careful about balancing the risk that some of these entities and products, including including crypto uh, um, assets and crypto exchanges bring to the system where you want to you want to encourage innovation, but you don't want to introduce so much risk in the, into the system that you're unable to understand how that risk will percolate throughout the system and what the end product will be for the customer and fi financial stability as well. So how does that come to the attention of the FDIC? Is it, do, do some group of cool kids from Silicon Valley come to Washington, D.C. and say, hey, we've got this new technology, we want to deploy it across the banking system. How does it come to the attention of the FDIC, all this technological change we're it's seeing? It's a great question. Occasionally, we do get folks in uh, in hoodies and, and <laughs> the Birkenstocks showing up at the FDIC and, and telling us about the new technology. Um, most often, the way it happens is that a bank will uh, consider a partnership or teaming up with a tech company, or they have already done some partnering with a tech company, and they will come to us and say, exactly how do you want us to position 
position ourselves vis-a-vis uh, -vis this company and how do you how are you going to regulate our relationship with that company so then that's where the FDIC steps in and, and we want to understand how the, the third party companies the technology companies in particular offer their products and services and how they are teaming up with these banks and how banks are managing that risk and in the end we have to protect the deposit insurance system and we have to protect consumers and we have to make sure there's safety and soundness in the system so that the system functions well and so it's it's a it's a constant fine balancing act that we do as a regulatory agency. When you're talking about catering to the unbanked, I'm thinking about alternative measures of whether somebody's going to repay their debt, right? The idea of looking at, say, Facebook or uh, looking at their interactions elsewhere online and using that as sort of a metric to determine whether they're going to be credit worthy rather than just a FICO score. How much do you view some of these measures as being insufficient and leading to people being getting loans that perhaps are not going to pay them back? Uh, it, it's 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 always an issue uh, whether people can repay their loan if you're get, if you're getting into the alternative data and you don't have a good credit history behind this consumer traditional credit history. Having said that, we have we have talked to companies that have pretty strong algorithms to analyze the ability of these customers that, are, that for which they're using alternative data to respond to their credit needs and how likely are they going to pay their bills. And so we're looking at that the technology here as a great equalizer, whereas in the past you wouldn't look at the alternative data. You would basically not consider it a reputable enough data or not enough of a credit history per se to, to, uh, to, to substantiate somebody's ability to pay back the loan uh, on its terms and, and, and conditions. Having said that, I think we're now venturing into a territory where technology can bridge that gap and tell us how consumers are going to behave. And so we're looking at alternative data at the FDIC and making sure we understand to the extent that banks are teaming up with companies that do alternative data lending, uh, how, how that's being done and what's the end outcome for the consumer as well as for the entities. Yelena McWilliams, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. The pleasure to be here today. Thank you both. Yelena McWilliams is chair of the FDIC, uh, which is based in Washington, D.C., but she is here with us at the Boston Fed for opening day of Boston Fintech Week 2019, which is powered uh, by Fintech Sandbox after just having come off a panel with my co-host, Paul Sweeney, which she survived, <laughs> and evidently she is still speaking with him. This yes. is good. I'm glad to see that. I'm very happy to say I'm being joined right now by Brad Levy. He is Global Head of Loans and Chief Executive Officer of MarketServe, uh, which is IH IHS Market. Uh, and he normally is based in New York, but he's here with us on site. So, Brad, I want to get started with the concept of uh, data and how that is becoming intricately connected with the modernization of markets. So when you're talking about your world, what does it mean to have data that gives you that kind of edge? Yeah, so in the loans market and the derivatives market, data is tremendously important. And not just data, but lots of different types of data, including what people term alternative data, which for me is just data that is not used in your traditional business day to day, but may have some insights and be interesting. So um, the data discussion is relative. It's relative to who you are and what you're doing. It's relative over time. And more importantly, it's dynamic over time where data sets combine and create additional data sets on top of the fact that you're consuming either base data 
or alternative data, and then the combinations of those. Wait, wait, back up. So mm -hmm. alternative data, are you talking about Yelp reviews and things like that? And, you know, is that sort of the concept here? I mean, Yelp reviews could be a form of alternative data for sentiment on some consumer product. But to an equities trader, credit default swap data might be as far as alternative data because an equities trader typically will not be looking at credit derivative data day to day. So it's, I'd say it's on the edge of what is alternative data to that particular instrument trading day to day. Are you trying to create data feeds that can then go into different algorithms that can then basically be streamed different traders uh, and, and sort of sub submitted into their models? Is that the idea here? Yeah. So ultimately, all data will be in feed form. A lot of data today is used in terms of people looking at it and actioning it. But over time, all data will become more digitized or more accessible via feeds. When that happens, there's a lot of analytics that you can run at the time you're consuming that data or after uh, or before. Uh, over time, those the modernization of the data through feeds allows you to do a lot more with it and then action that, uh, that insight that you may be gleaning from multiple streams of data. So it's not just one stream of data being digitized in a feed, it's many streams of data being digitized robust analytics being created around it with an insight that you can then action that may result in an equity trade, you shutting down a power plant, or getting into a risk position that you didn't want to be in the day before. So then how are people using these different feeds and sort of synthesizing them? How do they know how to weight all of the different points and bring them together? Well, I guess you don't uh, <laughs> at any given time, and it, it, it's relative over time. So today, there may be a certain point of data that is not interesting at all. Tomorrow, because it's an event in the market, that could be the most important information that you want to get to. So I do think there's an element of data, both changes over time, what is commoditized today, alternative today is commoditized tomorrow, uh, but also the macro backdrop of what is going on in the world may drive importance of data. And as we move to cloud, as we modernize, as we digitize, as sensors proliferate on every device and every person and everything, you're going to have a huge amount of data that is fed, analyzed, and actioned. We are in inning three of probably a triple header in the modernization of data in the world, including the financial services system. It's, it's, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm thinking about an article I once read about how the U.S. government collects a lot of information, and a lot of it could be completely useless, but with the AI that they sort of uh, overlay on top of it, they can discover things. Uh, and that's a lot of how the, the big discoveries have been made, and they've been made by accident. I want to shift gears a little bit because you sure. do tabulate all of these data points and you do have access to uh, so many things. Do you have a sense of where credit quality is kind of leaning these days? Well, I look at the markets as a 40-year bull market in rates going down, and I would estimate a 20-year bull market in credit going up. We did have an interruption in the credit going up Small in 07, 08, and Tiny. 9, or really 08 a and blip. 9. Um, but it really wasn't a credit event as it was a market event, in my view. It definitely manifested around credit. But the reality was there wasn't a huge washout with the exception of several institutions in the financial services world. Lehman and there Brothers was, and yes. right, Bear Stearns. But in terms of a major runs. credit event for the world, it felt like that, and it seemed to move on within a couple of years. I would argue that since the late 90s, we're in that credit boom. And over time, things get looser and cycles turn. Everybody's trying to predict the turn of the credit cycle, somewhat pinned to a recession or some other geopolitical thing. Uh, I'm not trying to time anything like that, but I do think it's a bit long. I'm not sure things are loose as much as there's a lot of financing available and 
over time those things tend to turn. The question will be, will it turn gradually or will it turn uh, in a volatile way or will it be multiple volatile turns that will add up over time to a credit event? If you don't think that 2008 and 2009 was a major credit event, what would a major credit event look like? I think it was an event in trust in the markets, which is the broader concept of credit maybe, but an actual credit event that drives a lot of defaults beyond just a few markets in housing and other areas where there truly were major credit events in that market. But in the loans market and leverage finance and the corporate bond markets and the student loan markets and consumer credit generally, things did get tight. But I personally, my view, I don't think it was the credit event that had a washout and a reset, like the late 80s, for example. Which we could still experience at some point. Again, in the world of physics and chemistry, you would argue that things go up and then do come down, and that different combinations of elements with physics drives dynamic outcomes, and that's why it's so hard to predict. Just real quick here, uh, we've been talking a lot about financial technologies here at the FinTech conference, and I guess uh, when we talk about leveraged loans, I don't think about a market that's particularly advanced technologically. Where are we in terms of moving away from fax machines into the modern era there? Yes, yeah, so there is no doubt that the loans market and all markets need an amount of digitization and modernization. Uh, there are some faxes in the industry that are utilized to distribute information around that's been going on for 30 years. Uh, in the last several years, we've moved dramatically away from faxes into proprietary feeds or more structured feeds that are not fax-based. Uh, but I would argue that there's many elements that need to modernize in the loan markets, whether it's the documents themselves, faxes being utilized, more direct connectivity. It's a heavier asset class that isn't um, as uh, digitized. But there have been major advances in the last five or 10 years on incremental digitization that have taken some faxes out of our life, have moved more automations from documents to a feed, more importantly, have combined many processes to take settlement times down from something that may have been in the mid-20s, to be honest, in terms of days and par loans in the US, down 40 plus percent in the last couple of years. So we've made a lot of progress post Dodd-Frank. Brad Levy, thank you so much for being with uh, with me today. Brad Levy is Global Head of Loans and Chief Executive Officer of MarketServe of IHS Market. Today, we are so lucky to have Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting. She does contribute to also Bloomberg Opinion columns. Uh, and, and Ellen, you know, I want to start with this news that, uh, well, really, frankly, that Saudi Aramco is looking at the richest people in Saudi Arabia to basically provide a linchpin of financing for its initial public offering. There seems to be a spate of news about this IPR. Are we getting closer now? Well, it does seem that we're getting closer, and this is really uh, a bombshell of an announcement, um, this report that um, that Saudi Arabia is looking for rich families, essentially, in the kingdom to buy into this IPO, uh, either before or even even possibly after, but probably before it goes on uh, on the local Saudi exchange. And um, what's what's really intriguing about the report is that some of these um, families and these family businesses had individuals who were arrested and held in the Ritz 
uh, in Riyadh uh, just, just I think, a few years ago. So uh, they say that they're not being pressured, but um, in a, a country where um, the government is an absolute monarchy, can you really say uh, that there's no, no pressure there? And uh, it would seem to be a sign, at least to me, that uh, international, uh, any regulator for an international exchange needs to pay very close attention to this because... Um, <clears throat> International exchange should not be party to anyone being coerced in any way to invest. Uh, this does seem to be a potentially a, an attempt to maybe artificially prop up prices. Uh, and we do know that the Saudis have uh, definitely tried to uh, prop up their exchange uh, at certain times. I would certainly say that a regulator should be very wary of allowing a listing of a business that engages in um, kind of a coercive uh, type practices. So you raise a really interesting point, which is that it would seem that Saudi Arabia engages in practices that don't seem necessarily consistent with publicly traded exchanges in developed markets, which raises a question, would any exchange actually push back on Saudi Aramco IPO, given the fact that it's a huge boon to them to get it listed on their exchange? And, and this is an issue, and we do we we have seen report we do have reports that um, managers and, and funds in Saudi Arabia have been pressured to buy at times to help lift the Tadawal, the Saudi exchange. So so we do have have some evidence that this uh, has occurred in the past. Uh, it's not, they're not the only exchange. We we've also gotten similar reports from China uh, as well. So uh, it really begs the question of whether uh, New York Stock Exchange or London Stock Exchange can really legitimately list Saudi Aramco, and it seems almost that um, the Saudis are realizing that perhaps uh, a big exchange like New York or London is really not the place for them. Uh, We do now see that they're potentially turning to Tokyo, but this issue of where to list and can they list, and are they willing to to let go of the power that they want to have in order to get a listing on New York or London, it really seems like perhaps this is not meant to be. Yeah, well, and there have been a lot of signs of that over time. One of them has been the drop in oil prices and sort of leads to another development uh, overnight that came out, which is that Saudi uh, Saudi Energy Minister uh, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, he is the new Saudi Energy Minister. The other one was basically pushed out. Can you give us some context to this? Well, I wouldn't. I would be hesitant to say that he was pushed out. We don't really know the reason why um, Fali is no longer the energy minister. Either he could have been pushed out. He may have desired to step down at this point, given uh, what's been going on. Uh, so, just because we don't know for sure what went down there, um, the way that they do this in Saudi Arabia is they just issue a decree. So it it might look like he's been ousted, but we we don't really know the details there. But it does seem that. Um, the Saudis were potentially moving in this direction. They did remove Al-Fali as chairman of the board of Saudi Aramco, uh, and they did um, divide the ministry of, uh, used to be the Ministry of Energy, Industry, and Economy just before this. So um, it does seem like they were making changes in this area. One of the reasons I've I've heard is that they want to um, make more of a separation between the oil company and the ministry before uh, they move on, move forward with this IPO. But uh, people have also said that, you know, there's a problem with oil prices. Uh, there's been problems with this IPO. Uh, it would seem to me that Khaled al-Fali is not to be blamed for this. This is an oil market that's being ruled by speculation over demand, weakening demand, 
global economic data that is not positive, and the U.S.-China trade talks. And we look at oil climbing today. Well, there are a lot of reasons for it, but one of them is that uh, there's some good news on the U.S.-China trade talks, that they're setting talks for October. So I wouldn't be surprised if oil is rising more as a result of this than a result of anything that Saudi Arabia is saying or doing. It's really good perspective, Ellen, especially because I'm looking at the wording of a lot of the stories, and it's that uh, that King Salman dismissed uh, the former energy minister and put in uh, this heir to the throne. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that I think it's important to be cautious about that and basically say we don't know what happened, we don't know what the implications are, and that the price moves that we're seeing today are not necessarily reflective of this change. Dr. Ellen Wald, thank you again for being with us, president of Transversal Consulting. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. We are broadcasting live from FinTech Week. Uh, We are currently in Boston at the Boston Federal Reserve. It is being hosted, uh, powered by the FinTech Sandbox. And I am so happy to say we have with us Nadine Shakar. She is head of global markets for State Street uh, here on site. We are going to be doing a panel together about human versus machine in this evolving era of technologically fueled markets. And I was left with a question when I was really looking into this. Do humans matter in public markets anymore? Ultimately, will machines, will the algorithms, will the artificial intelligence sort of take over when it comes to decision making? First of all, good morning, Lisa. Thank you for having us. Uh, To answer your question, I think there's always going to be a role for humans uh, in in the process. And, uh, you know, when I was preparing for this panel, I'm I'm not quite sure it's really man versus machine. Oh, come on. It sounds so much better that way. Maybe it's woman versus machine. Right. But but it's it's really going to be, I think it's man plus machine because they they complement each other a lot better. Maybe... Beyond our combined lifetime, we'll, we'll see humans being sidelined. But right now, you know, the big debate continues to be is artificial intelligence really going to replace humans or will it augment human thinking? And from my perspective and what we look at, I think right now it's an augmentation process uh, more than anything else. So I, I believe humans will continue to drive, uh, but machines will make the process a lot better and faster and hopefully cheaper. All I know is when I walk out on a trading floor of any of the big New York investment banks, I see a lot fewer people than I used to see. Uh, there used to be 100 people trading corporate bonds, government bonds. Now there's a handful. So do you think technology, so that's obviously one side effect, but just from the markets, the operation of the markets, do you think technology has generally been positive for the capital markets? I think it has. There's definitely been a convergence between technology and in humans when it comes to trading. Electrof- electronification has helped quite, quite a bit. But you still need humans to write those algos to power those machines. And what we're seeing, especially at State Street, is what we look for now are uh, traders that can code and coders that can trade. Okay. And that's where you're really seeing that convergence coming through. So, yes, less humans manning the phones and more, more algos taking over. But you still need humans to power that that technology and that thought process. I love this, the sort of kumbaya moment between humans and machines, arm right. in arm, singing, you know. Let's enjoy what it lasts. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm just, I'm just thinking of Terminator. That's I know, exactly. I'm, I'm kind of thinking that it might be a little more Terminator than kumbaya. Uh, but indeed, I want to wonder, I'm wondering about price discovery in this era of algorithms and artificial intelligence. And I, a lot of the recent market volatility has raised, risen questions about how smart it is, right? Because when we talk about the humans, at least in our 
our show, they say they're long and they're just holding their positions. They're not trading on every Trump tweet or every headline. Do you think that algorithmic trading has changed the idea of price discovery a little bit more? It, it has. I mean, it's still driven by the biases of the people that that uh, that that code them, right? So there's that cognitive bias that's that's there. Um, it, the, the machines make them a lot faster, right? So it helps us swift through, uh, peg out lots of lots of data um, at the same time, and 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 assist with that. On the flip side, though, it doesn't understand the subtleness of the tweets, if you will, right? So it is really the uncertainty that's causing people to sit on the sidelines, less about price discovery in the machines. I've never really heard of the tweets described as subtle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's yeah, not really normally the way that I would describe yeah, I'm not them. Quite sure the, I'm not quite sure the <laughs> tweets are subtle, uh, but I think the machines being able to distinguish uh, the subtlety of the impact of those markets. But that's that's a good one, Lisa. So technology is certainly, <laughs> technology, Nadine, has certainly accelerated, I would say to some extent, the you know, the, the passive management, active management, the debate, I mean, kind of where do you think this is all going to shake out? We've had a, you know, relatively, you know, strong market over the last 10 plus years. Uh, the, the, you know, the passive strategies worked well. Is that the future? Is it the future? I, I, I don't believe so. Um, obviously, passive, uh, a lot a lot of the flows are going into passive investments. And uh, there was a, there's a debate whether uh, active investment is, is dead or not. But there's still um, a lot of managers that, that are making do out of it. Obviously, State Street is a big uh, uh, index index shop. And uh, we strive to uh, achieve you know our returns by doing things better, faster, and cheaper uh, for, for our clients. But I, I do believe that there's still... Uh, room for 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 both um, in in the process. Do you feel like a therapist in chief when people are saying to you, you know, do humans matter? Do I matter? Humans do matter. Uh, humans definitely do <laughs> that, matter. Yes. <laughs> but I think the 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 um, the skill sets that we're going to be looking for in the future are going to be a lot different. But humans definitely do matter, and we we treat them uh, you know very very nicely. Well, See, a, Paul, it's important. Uh, you're in Boston, the head of the mutual fund home of you know the world and it's, so it's, right it's been the biggest uh, one of the biggest employers so humans really matter they, they i'm big enough matter. i'm strong enough and gosh darn it i matter <laughs> they, they, they do without again as i said earlier without without humans yep. you can't you can't power the machinery right exactly nadine shakar thank you so much for, for joining us. us we appreciate it nadine is head of global markets at state street just talking a little bit about the kind of the confluence of technology here in the financial services industry it's obviously a big theme here uh at the uh, federal reserve bank of boston here for this boston uh, fintech week 2019 powered by the fintech sandbox you know a lot of folks here thinking about the convergence of technology and finance both at the corporate level and at the personal level as well thanks for listening to the bloomberg pnl podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm paul sweeney i'm on twitter at pt sweeney i'm lisa abramowitz i'm on twitter at lisa abramowitz one before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide on bloomberg radio